And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out all the Series 1 baseball NFTs that have dropped over at TopsNFTs.com. Derek Van Riper here. With Eno Saris on this episode, we have a lot of great questions from our mailbag. We have uh, one listener who sent us some ideas about streaming steals and wanted to know if that was something we would consider doing in leagues with daily moves, especially. Obviously, a, a great idea if you can pull it off. So some interesting things to pull on there. A few drop questions and, and some questions that are, are kind of angling at uh, how much to balance a very slow start through 15 to 20 games against a fast start. So we'll have a few players that we look at under the microscope in that regard. Uh, we've got some stuff plus and pitching plus questions, as well as a couple questions about uh, foul balls and the value of those, and a, a new metric called Grip Plus proposed by one of our listeners as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Thursday? It's good. I like Thursdays. I got my long run out of the way, eight miles yesterday, and we're looking straight at the weekend. That's awesome. Yeah, I need to get my run in Later today, I've got this show. I got to record the athletic baseball show. I got to bring my wife to the airport. Oh, got to keep the dog fed and edit these shows. But I'm going to try and run. Days are nice and long now. There's so much more daylight now. It's so much easier to go for a run on a work day now than it was back in the winter when it was dark at 4:30. That nonsense. What do you do when your wife is away? I don't know. It's been so long. I've forgotten. In the, in the past, <laughs> the last time I can remember her taking a trip without me was a work trip pre-COVID, pretty soon after we got Hazel. So that time I just stayed home. We had a you know, five-month-old puppy or six-month-old puppy, so I wasn't right. wasn't really going anywhere. I was on dog duty. So yeah, I, I don't really know. I mean, is this a situation you've been in before now, where you have these these limited windows, where you have the the house to yourself, or you have a couple days to yourself? Like, what what should I be doing? It happens every once in a while, and usually what I do is watch a movie from beginning to the end. <laughs> With that interruption. Uh, I don't have to get up. I don't have to get make food for anyone. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to, you know, and, and, and you know, my wife and I, we have a little bit of time after we put the kids to bed. So a lot of times when we do see a movie, we have to see it in like sort of like <laughs> half hour, hour increments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to tell you those like long like Snyder cut type movies <laughs> when you have to see it over like four nights you're like uh what are we still watching this <laughs> I think we tried we I think we bailed on the third portion of Tenet because we were just like whatever you know and then then later she she was out of town and i watched tenant all the way through and i was like well that wasn't that bad actually when you watch it all the way through in one city power through <laughs> right yeah that that makes a lot more sense i think that's probably why in our home you know, we have the same kind of routine not because we have children but just because of our, our work schedules are, are not perfectly in sync so we get to the end of the day 9 30 10 o'clock at night 
and we've got an hour, hour and a half before we go to sleep, and we're watching a couple shows. We don't really try to cram movies in. I think both of us, if not if not both of us, at least one of us is kind of fried, and we're like, throw on something mindless. So it, it's usually right. an animated show, something we've seen a million times before. Uh, we binge-watched Is It Cake, which... Let me tell you, they are coming up with some amazing reality shows. <laughs> some very talented That's a whole, people. Whole story, whole show about whether or not it's cake. Extremely <laughs> talented people. Like I, I think cooking shows and baking shows are awesome. And I think the 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 format for Is It Cake uh, actually got me kind of excited because it's part game show and it's part baking show. So I, I think I liked that show more than most people did. But if you're wondering why I don't watch the classics, uh, well, that's part of the reason why. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll follow your lead and just watch a movie because the the calm, the having fewer things to do, is <laughs> surprisingly surprisingly a nice uh, nice break from the norm. But uh, let's get into some topics here. The streaming steals is something I think we've touched on at least once over the lifespan of the show. Uh, but this is uh, an email that came in. Long-time listener, first-time email, I'm in a date, uh, daily 12-team head-to-head league with steals as a category, and like always, I find myself in need of some steals. I was wondering if you'd ever thought of trying to stream them. This probably won't work in a weekly format, but if you have a rotating roster spot in a daily league, it could have some utility. What kinds of things do you think would be beneficial to look at if you were going to try this out? Uh, and this particular listener actually sent us a, a worksheet that they've been trying to put together just to have some different things in there. I know they had... A number of stolen bases per innings pitched, looking at pitchers who were on the mound for a lot of steals, uh, try to target catchers that are not good at controlling the running game. So yeah, so what factors would you be interested in if you were going to try something like this? The stolen base is almost 100% stolen on the pitcher. Um, we did a piece, Baggerly, Andrew Baggerly and I, about how the league is actually becoming much more efficient in stealing bases in terms of like stolen base percentage. It's you know the highest it's ever been. And that's partially because everything's mathed out in today's league, uh, but also partially because they've identified that the, the the range basically in pop times and arm strength on catchers is smaller than the range in times to the plate for the pitcher. And so basically, you know the pitcher's time to the plate. If it is over, I think it's 1.7 or something, then you steal bases. And if it's under, and then for the pitcher, it becomes like a very obvious target. Oh man, I'm at 1.8 or 1.9. They keep stealing on me. I, I forget. Was it? Yeah, it was. I think it was Juan Lopez. Uh, that somebody got on first. This Juan Lopez is 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 in the news for other reasons it's everywhere right now. Right now. <laughs> but I believe that like someone he was pitching, someone got on first. They stole second. And either they scored or they were gone. They were caught somehow other way, but not caught stealing. And then somebody got on first and they stole second. So it's like, that's what it's like if you, like Noah Syndergaard had this problem at some point. Like if you don't change your time to the plate, either vary them, vary your looks over or or cut that time to the plate down, you're a guy they steal on. So right now, the guy that everyone steals on is Sandy Alcantara. Hmm. And it's, it's fairly obvious. He's got five stolen bases. Like, the second place person has third. It's Kyle Hendricks. And then there's a whole bunch of people with one. So, um, you know, I might be looking at qualified. I'll change that leaderboard here. Let's see if it changes things. Oh, yeah. Noah Syndergaard, number one, seven stolen bases. He just wasn't there because he wasn't qualified. So, uh, and it's not always lefty-righty. Matt Moore is third with four. He's just slow to the plate. Tyler 
is it Mo- I think it's Mally. Mally. I think I've heard it as Mally, Mally over time. I thought it was Molly originally. Yeah. I think it's Tyler Mally. Tyler Mally is fourth. Uh, you can't stream against like Ottavino uh, or Hunter Strickland or Heath Hembree that are also on the list. But Kyle Hendricks is there. So, you know, I think if you're going to get super granular, you do this. You 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 go over to Fangraphs. You click the fielding tab, pitchers, standard, and then you can sort by stolen bases. And then you can just look and see if anybody, you know, is on your list for this weekend. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard. It's like, it's a little bit much. What I usually end up doing is, uh, just because there's also relievers on there, right? So it's like, what am I doing here? So one thing that I have done, because I have Jorge Mateo on some leagues and I, I think he's a terrible hitter. Uh, apologies to Ian Khan. <laughs> I don't know if Ian ever said he was a good hitter, but I, I just think the the, well, the yeah, value's I mean, he, been but there. He believes in him. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to hit. I don't want to play him as a hitter at often, but I do want the stolen bases. So what I have done uh, with him is a slightly different version of this. Would you just click over to uh, team stats, fielding stolen bases allowed, uh, and you still have a pretty good spread because you have the Angels with sixteen, of course, seven of those are North Syndergaards, and you have the A's with three. But it's like the A's with three, like uh, the Yankees with three. I think I don't want to run Mateo against the Yankees over the weekend, especially when you have those like Friday, Saturday, Sunday things that you have in MSBC. Like I'm not going to necessarily try to get Mateo in there for the weekend series against the Yankees. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, I normally, uh, if I am doing this and I do this from time to time, I will look at the team fielding tab and just say, ooh, looks like Angels, Reds, Rangers and Braves um, are the are the teams to steal against, but Guardians and Marlins. I think that's those are your six that you that you kind of want to uh, to steal against. Everybody else, they're more in the pack together. That's a big enough pool, though, where if you are streaming one spot, there's probably someone playing against one of those six teams that's available that you can move into an outfield spot usually, or, or possibly the UT spot, depending on the shape of your roster, and you know that might be an effective way to. to do well in the category. I think the only drawback I can think of, and this is this email came from Nick. Nick's league is a twelve-team league. I think that's probably right at the threshold of not being too yeah. deep, where you're getting completely in buried like in the other categories. And Twenty, like <laughs> what are you looking at in twenty-team leagues? You're like hoping some fourth outfielder plays enough to steal you a base. Yeah, or like yeah, Roman Quinn gets a start, and you know yeah. he gets on base <laughs> against Sandy Alcantara. Well, great, that's fine. He steals a base, but. What else is Roman Quinn going to do, do for you? For you? So <laughs> yeah, that might be it for the weekend. One stolen base, which you know, in in some instances, that's that's all you need. But generally, I think this is possible. I think it does work more in daily leagues and in weekly leagues. And I think, yeah, knowing that it's more on the pitchers than on the catchers, that does help you narrow it down a little bit as far as what you're looking for. And if you're, I, I think targeting the worst of the worst starters is a good strategy. Like the team approach is a g- good general approach, but if you know who those three or four horrible starters are at controlling the running game, you're going to get multiple cracks at those guys for anybody you put in the lineup on any particular day. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, especially in a 10-teamer, you know, there is a, this is the kind of elbow grease, the the effort that you can (laughs) put into to, is that... I don't even know if I use no, that. No, that's right. correct usage. Sometimes my German. No. Sometimes my German sits that comes out. Elbow <laughs> grease sounds like a thing that you would make up accidentally 
<laughs> but it's it, that's a real one. All right, good. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, it is the kind of effort that you can put in to separate yourself from other people. Like you can, and, and you can stream hitters. I think people don't do enough of that in ten team leagues. This, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of like staring at at our ten team league and just being like, man, like I I want to bring I want to activate Jonathan India, and I'm just like, who do I drop? They're all pretty good. Or you could just look at it and be like, they're all meh, you know? So I, should I just like, just cycle through some spots? So it's like, I'm looking at Spencer Torkelson, right? Do I hold on to Spencer Torkelson in a 10-team league? I, I mean, yeah, probably gonna hit like 230, 240 with 25 homers. Yeah, that's pretty good, pretty good. But like in a 10-team league, you're like, hmm, I can maybe get more than that out of that spot. Yeah, Jared Kelnick in a 10-team league? Is he a, a must-hold? Hmm. Probably not, right? And I think yeah. that's where a few of the other questions uh, that from the rundown come from is this, these more shallow formats and some of these difficult decisions you have to make early in the year and trying to decide, did I just make a mistake and should I accept it as a sunk cost? Thanks a lot again for that email, Nick. But the next couple of questions are about Jonathan India uh, and uh, the other player, Edelberto Mondesi, who's hurt right now, which I think adds a, a layer of difficulty. <laughs> Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news on the wire. Here we go, breaking news on the wire from our reporter Alec Lewis in Kansas City. Adalberto Mondesi has ripped his ACL. Oh, okay. Well, that sucks and yeah. provides some clarity. Puts a hole in our rundown. <laughs> so well, that's a season-ending uh, tear. It's not like a small tear, right? It's a season-ending injury yeah i i mean i actually think i i don't know that i have more details than that he says he has an acl tear there there are non incomplete tears and there are like you you can do something to your mcl like for example i was just talking to john gray and he has uh an mcl issue and he said you know it's a small sprain or something but the sprain is a tear so he has a small tear in his mcl but it's like a side-to-side thing for a pitcher it's not as big a deal uh, and he's, he says he's going to be back in a week or two. So uh, there could be a chance where it's a smaller tear and he comes back. Uh, you know, that stuff's coming out. I still think he's a drop in shallow release because he, you, he's a guy you have for steals. And uh, it's going to be at least a couple months. And uh, if you have any sort of backlog in your IL situation, which most of us do at this point, uh, or you don't even have an IL, then I think he's, I mean, I think he's a drop. It didn't take long for the IL spots to fill up in the leagues where uh, we have those available. I I mean, I would say in general, if we didn't have an injury for Mondesi right now, what you spent to get him on your team doesn't necessarily matter. It's more about the format. It's more about who you'd pick up to replace him if you're going to drop him and who else you could consider dropping to get that replacement. All of those things that usually go into an add drop decision are, are all in play here. I mean, he still has those five stolen bases. Like, if he was still playing and it was anything deeper than 15 or deeper, I would, I'd probably hold on to him just for the stolen bases. I still think even in, in leagues more shallow than that, there would have been a better case to wait it out a little bit longer than to just drop him 15 games in. But a 37% K rate's the worst we'd seen so far. Power hasn't been there to this point. I mean, there were, there were definitely some concerns, a ton of ground balls. Highest ground ball rate of Mondesi's career so far, too. So now with this injury, and assuming a very lengthy absence, even in a 10-team or 12-team keeper league where you're keeping 10 players, now the question is, 
is Mondesi a top 100 sort of player looking to the future? The answer might be no. What's the case for him as is staying in the top 100 given this ongoing issue with injuries? And it's it's not totally unlike Byron Buxton's career arc from an injury perspective, but we're not seeing the underlying growth. Yeah, it's worse from a, a player production standpoint yeah. in terms of player skills. Like he has not cut his strikeout rate; it's only gotten worse. He's not cut his swing strike rate; it's only gotten worse. Uh, this is his best year for uh, chase rate, but it's traditionally been very bad, and uh, it's not necessarily helping his game right now. Other than having a slightly better walk rate, I, you know, sometimes chase rate is not something that people should chase <laughs> you know like Not in just because a guy improved a chase rate by itself like it doesn't really isn't good because right. he obviously does not have a good sense of the zone so if he's not chasing he's not swinging that means he's looking at strike three more often which is why strikeout rate went up and uh, and not swinging is correlated with production however it is correlated with a higher strikeout rate so ideally you'd have somebody with a lower strikeout rate uh, that starts chasing less that could lead to power. That could lead to to maybe slightly few more Ks, but more walks and more power. So that's that's the story of, of chase rate. So yeah, in this case, uh, I would look at this and and be disappointed in in his skills growth. The bat X rest of season projection for Mondesi at the time of this injury is one of the most unusual projections I think I've ever seen for a player. <laughs> it's a two fifteen average, a two sixty OBP, a three fifty eight slugging percentage. 13 homers in 516 plate appearances and 39 steals, which I mean, you, you can't you almost can't make up a better fantasy player whose real life offensive value lags so yeah. far behind what he Reminds brings for like our uh, game. Rougenet Odor. Yeah, kind of. It's kind of like that and runs more. When Adore had like a 280 OVP and like was going 30-20 with terrible defense at second. <laughs> had like a zero war and like had an amazing season for Fangra- for fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, he looks like a below average player and he's only even close to average because he has great defense. Because that uh, bat line that you just read out, it leads to a 64 WRC plus. Not normally something that anybody plays on their real-life baseball team. No. So to answer my own previous question, I don't see him as a top 100 keeper. I don't know if I see him as a top 150 keeper. I think he's a surprisingly difficult player to hold. If you're in a multi-year league and you're playing for now and someone else clearly isn't, I'm sure there's still something you can get back in a trade if you're holding more but than I 10 think players? it's probably like an old reliever. <laughs> you know, it's probably like a Anthony Bender or you know what I mean it's not it's not exciting. No, it's a it's a sell low, but also I mean we know that based on the comments they were making at least the Royals were beginning to you know reduce expectations for Adalberto Not Mondesi. even consider him a, a yeah, a full-time player as they were saying. It's unfortunate because but, there are there are very interesting tools here that just have not developed into the player that many of us had hoped. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. There are harder decisions, though, and and I appreciate uh, this one, you know, with the keeper aspect does make it a little bit tougher uh, because steals, steals are why you have young keepers. Steals are why you have modesty. Steals are difficult. If you do like a, a fade youngster strategy, as I often do in my dynasty leagues, and you and you go after, you know, mid-career veterans, it's harder to find steals, you know? Like, you know, it's a lot harder to have Jose Altuve his first five years than it is to trade for Jose Altuve and get tons of value out of him the next five years, but not many stolen bases. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that that's why it, you have to have young players or... Um, you know, what I'm trying right now in my, in my 20 team dynasty is, uh, you know, just have a lot of guys that are going to steal 10, which is, you know, obviously if you've been listening to this, that's, that's, that's the theory. That's, that's the way I've been trying to cobble together my steals this year. I would say returns so far are, I'm not last in steals anywhere. Uh, however, I'm not first in steals anywhere. So I don't think you expected to be first in steals with that strategy though. And uh, in, in leagues where I did that, I thought maybe I'll be fourth in steals and that'll be good enough and if i'm sixth or seventh because i did other things well and and didn't overpay here i'll have better balance elsewhere i'll have enough saves and i'll have better ratios and i'll instead of being mid-pack in a bunch of other categories maybe i'm top three in everything else yeah i actually nailed it like almost exactly what i wanted to do in labor right now where i'm first by like 30 points yay (laughs) early early lead Uh, you're the the mess (laughs) of nl AL labor right now shush uh but uh uh oh yeah i thought you meant like historically no i mean like right now that's that's the spot you're i'll take being the mets right now yeah um uh there's (laughs) like first has 18 his 18 steals and second has like 17 steals and then I have 11 steals. I'm third. And I'm in the pack. So there's another guy who has 10 and another guy who has 9. So, like, you know, I'm in the pack. But I didn't want to be 18 and 17. That just, that cost too much to me. You know, there was there was too much opportunity cost, too much actual sort of auction cost. I just, I didn't want to spend it on that. So if I end up third in steals this year, I'll, I'll be ecstatic. Yeah, I think that would be things working out really well based on how you put the roster together in the first place. The other question that was related to early drops was also a general question. The question came from Jack. 
And Jack wanted to know, in general, what would be the statistically significant number of at-bats and stat cast events to determine that a player just isn't cutting it this year. He's looking at Jonathan India specifically and bad stat cast numbers for India in a very limited number of events, 15 at the time of this writing, uh, but also with a hamstring injury that's cost him some time. So he's considering cutting his losses. Uh, so as he was watching projections drop in real time and uh, in a shallow league, is this enough to make a decision on a player like India, who I think finished pretty consistently inside the top 100 overall in terms of where he was going at the end of draft season? Yeah, the difficult thing about stabilization is that it's not like you get to the point and then the magic happens and that's what you have the rest of the year. The the What's happening at the stabilization point is that you now take more information for what they're doing currently than you do from league average or that player's personal average. So that that doesn't mean more like 90%. It means more like 51%. Like once you get to 50 balls in play, you can take 51% of their current barrel rate and then 49% of either league average or their personal average going backwards, right? So you'd still be regressing it, right? Like, so if somebody had a barrel rate like up into the season of 5%, and this season they had 20%, when they got to 50 balls in play, you would project them going forward for, um, why did I do this? Now I got to do math on the you fly. Half, I half screwed of 20%, it up so bad. Half of 20%. You, you, would, take, you would take 10%. And then you'd add 5%, you'd, you'd have their 5% for four. So you actually, you'd know, half of it would be 20% and half of it would be 5%. Yeah. So you would actually end up with 12.5% projection going forward. Right. So, you, so improvement, but not quite as much improvement as you regression. had at this point. Right. So the regression right. from the new level, but improvement from the old one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with India right now, he's got 28 events. He's halfway to the halfway point. <laughs> you know, uh, He had a 10% barrel rate or a 9.6% barrel rate last year, 3.6 this year. Um, I would be looking mostly at a 9% barrel rate going forward. You know, and that's not amazing, but it is a, a good enough number to hit the, the projections. Like, for example, the Bat X does all this for you. And is, uh, you know, very sort of stack cast forward. And it's still projection for 17 homers going forward. Now, it's a little bit down off his preseason projections, but it's still 17 homers. Uh, I'm a little concerned he has a hamstring injury and it hasn't taken off. And I think the bad X uh, includes a lot of that because attempts, I've, I mentioned before, are sticky. Like attempts uh, are meaningful early. So the bad X has him for the fewest amount of stolen bases going forward, eight. So, you know, uh, that's why I really like the bad X. It does a lot of his work for you, right? But th it does get even harder. <laughs> uh, I think with India, there's enough talent and he's coming back and I would wait at least a couple more weeks. He's not even at the, you know, at 50 balls in play. So 50 balls in play. Uh, I mean, we could take India here and double it. Uh, 50 balls in play is about uh, 20, 25 games. So for the people who played all month, uh, you get you're almost getting there. Let me look at leaders in batting stat cast. Yes, so like John Carlos Stanton has 45 balls in play and a 24 percent barrel rate. 
that's insane. Twenty four percent barrel. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what a twenty four percent barrel rate. Sure. Yeah, that's but normal. That's, that, that's. I mean, for him, it's not that far off. I mean, seventeen percent career, twenty four percent, forty five batted balls. I would say that he's like he might have a pretty good year this year, and his ISO right now is one fifty, so he would be a buy low. You know, I think that that's the kind of analysis you can do. But he's at forty five balls in play. Uh, most most people, Trey Mancini's at fifty balls in play, has a twelve percent barrel rate. That's good news. Uh, but even like I said, even at fifty, you would be still looking at half of what they're doing now and half of what they did before. Um, and uh, you know, there's other things that are slightly faster. Um, I know that we were looking. You know, I don't know if this is it's not officially on the rundown, so I'm going to throw this in there. I had someone talking with me about the decision between Brian Reynolds and uh, Taylor Ward. And Brian Reynolds' StatCast page, he's doing everything wrong. You know, it's all terrible. And Taylor Ward is doing everything right. It's all beautiful. You can still use the Bad X rest of season projection as a guide, and it says $14 for Brian Reynolds and $1 for Taylor Ward. Now, there's some playing time stuff there. So what if you say they get equal playing time going forward? I think that is where the assumption falls apart a little bit. Because in order to give Taylor Ward uh, full playing time, who are you Who are you docking on the Angels? Joe Adele. And the question with Joe Adele, uh, we talked about the strikeout rate kind of being elevated mostly against the Astros. Still looks bad for the season at 38.9%. I mean, he's gone back to 2020 Joe Adele strikeout rate levels so far this season, he'd be the guy that loses time if Ward's going to play more. And Brandon Marsh would probably lose a little bit too, but they're leading off Taylor Ward. Like Clearly, there's some sort of internal like or belief in it what he's doing. It almost looks like there's a fair amount of Marsh-Adele platooning. Yeah. Where Adele's getting the short side of it. So if that's the plan and Ward has a spot to call his own most days or almost every day, and he's leading off for that lineup, which is healthy right now? Then it gets closer because the, the bad X projections for 430 plate appearances for him, and uh, for Brian Reynolds, it's for 580. So uh, let's bump a war just on playing time. Let's bump him to uh, $3 versus $14, right? Okay. I'm giving I'm giving Ward a lot more playing time. Yeah, so maybe even five dollars. Five versus the fourteen. Okay, you're so still... You, you still want Reynolds, but I look at players like Taylor Ward, and I look at shallow leagues, and I think this is what makes shallow leagues hard. And I, I, the people that knock shallow leagues are wrong to do so because if we get to the end of the season and Taylor Ward's a twenty dollar player and Brian Reynolds is a ten dollar player, is it really that surprising? even though the projections right now are so different, when you start to look at how he's being used, the playing time's no longer a question, the gap between the lineups, the underlying skills, part of what's messed up with Taylor Ward's projections is the lack of productive big league seasons prior to this one. I mean, he, he was pretty decent last year as a part-time player, right? He was a 111 WRC plus guy. So there's some evidence that he can be a good, steady contributor, and have a good enough OBP to be in the leadoff spot. Killing the minor leagues in the meantime. Yeah, I, I don't. it's been a long road, but the baseline projection is still a little bit light because of pre-2021 numbers, and we just haven't seen it as an everyday player at the big league level before. 
But I don't think this is totally unheard of. Look at his his O swing percentage. 18.1% right now in these first 11 games. Walking more than he's striking out. Striking out less than ever so far. And swing strike, right? So here's one place where Reynolds is probably going to beat... Uh, I mean, uh, Ward is probably going to beat Reynolds. In uh, swing strike rate takes... I think it was like 150 pitches for hitters. We're pretty close to that already, aren't we? Oh, we're past Easily. that. Yeah, you've seen that's like 12 games. You 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 can take about four. You can take about four uh, pitches. Yeah, so that happens in a couple weeks. That's quick. Uh, let me see here. Let me make sure I've got that right. Uh, so swing strike rate. I I, I like this. Uh, there's a post called "Long Needed Update on Reliability" on Fangraphs. Uh, it's a little bit old from 2016, but what's cool about it is it has a interactive graph where you can kind of look at things. So um, you can look, you can change the denominator, and I think the denominator is all pitches and swing strike rate, and then you look for where it passes over 0.75. That's the reliability rate, and it does so at about 260 pitches. So divide 260 by four, and you're talking about about 70 plate appearances. Did I do that right? Close. 65, I think. Yeah. So he's close, but Reynolds has passed it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Reynolds has passed it and has the highest swing strike rate of his career. So I think think it's it's, it's like probably, like I think the strikeout rate is a problem for Reynolds. I think he's going to end up with like a, I know the projections say, you know, 20, 21%, but, uh, you know, I would lean more towards like a 25% strikeout rate the rest of the way, which means that I don't then believe his 275 batting average. If he has a 25% strikeout rate, I would believe more of a 240, 250. Now we're taking money away from Brian Reynolds, right? Mm-hmm. Now here's a guy who's 14. If he's going to hit 250, he's more like a $10 player, like you're saying, right? 10 or even less potentially i think a a good bit of that value comes from his average right and he's had those high 300s averages you know in his full seasons and that's why you know it looks like you know that's what he'll do but he also had better strikeout rates back then the barrel rates uh for him he's at 43 events with a seven percent barrel rate uh and he's had a eight you know eight point eight percent for his career ten percent the last couple years I would say, you know, going forward, I project him for basically his career bear rate, like an eight, eight and a half or something. So that's less power than he's had in the past. And uh, I think the bad X shows that it has the lowest power projection for him, 17 homers. So basically, if you think Taylor Ward can hit better than 260 and hit more than 17 homers and steal more than four bags, Man, I think he could do those things. Like that's that's very reasonable to me. At the very mm-hmm. least, I think you've talked He's projected me for two forty eight fourteen five. So you've talked me out of Brian Reynolds as an early season buy low to go target and trade. So at least that is yeah. clear. Whether I would actually it's drop harder him or not. with drops, right? Because yeah. you're just like, man, you're just gonna drop this guy. He could have value. But this the person who was asking me also had like Jesus Sanchez, right? Mm. He's up right now too. And it's like, ah, oh, so you're in the kind of league where, you know, am I going to take this, am I going to keep this hot thing or am I going to go? And I told him, in my defense, I at least told him not to use a waiver claim on Brian Reynolds, right? 
because he's in this 10 or 12 team league. He has a high waiver. And I said, don't use the waiver claim because there's nothing like really compelling about Brian Reynolds. You don't want to spend extra resources to get him. Now, the second question is, do you drop Taylor Ward or Jesus Sanchez for him? And uh, I've, I hemmed and hawed with him as we sort of looked at the different things on Twitter. I would, I would say that I, I lean towards keeping Sanchez and Ward over Reynolds. Sanchez is still on a, a 30 home run pace, which is more or less what he was on last year at the big league level. He hit 14 in 64 he, games. He does have worse strikeout rates, but you know his strikeout rates might be very similar to Reynolds going forward. So you might actually have a similar 250 uh, batting average projection for both of those guys going forward. Mm-hmm. And yet you would project Sanchez for a lot more homers, better max exit velo, better barrels, bet, you know, better hard close hit. to being... Yeah. You know, better hard hit, close to being where he was last year with Barrels. So that now you have 200 batted ball events for him with like a 12% barrel rate. So now you can sort of believe the whole track record with Sanchez. So the power is real. You know, unfortunately, maybe not the 277 batting average right now, but this looks like a guy who can hit 250 with 30 homers this year. <laughs> oh, this game is fun. It really is. It it's And it's hard every single year. Brian Reynolds is the kind of guy that, Four weeks ago, you would have said he's one of the more stable, middle-of-the-order guys around. Even if he's not like a big power guy, not an early rounder, he does everything well. There's so many ways for it to go right, and there still are a lot of ways for it to go right. But just that little drop compared to some guys that were going even a 100 picks later, in the case of Ward, guy that wasn't even being drafted at all, can put him into a coin flip scenario less than a month into the season. Like that... That to me just seems like the the makings of a very difficult game to play. Yeah, yeah. I you know it's funny. I, I don't have any shares of Ryan Reynolds, and it's not that I meant it or that I was fading him. Um, he just you know he didn't fit any needs for me. Where I was like, oh, he can be a stolen base guy later in the draft. I was like, nah, I don't not really, you know. Um, and you know, I guess he could. I could have ended up with him as a batting average, uh, you know, guy, but. He just, uh, I don't know. He just didn't go where I needed or where I was looking for outfielders. So um, it's it's a little bit more difficult because I don't have any personal stakeholder in this argument. You know, I'm kind of like, yeah, let him go or I don't care. You know, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I I do think the the most worrisome part of this of his line is the swing strike rate and the strikeout rate. Let me look at the strikeout rate reliability. That's just uh, all at bats or is that plate appearances? Plate appearances strikeout rate you're looking at okay so you're looking at 135 plate appearances for strikeouts so he's not quite there yet but the swing strike rate uh, you know is an indicator that it's going to be bad it is an early concern uh, to be sure thanks a lot for that question jack looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events we've got the spot our partner StubHub has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. All right, you know, let's get back to a few more questions here. There's uh, another question from Jack about stuff plus and pitching plus he just wanted to know 
what's the corollary to the hitting question? What's the statistically significant number for stuff plus numbers? I know you've talked about three starts being really important as we look at stuff plus and pitching plus and uh, at roughly how many pitches thrown should we start to read those numbers as either red flags or green flags? An example, Tyler Wells putting up great stuff plus and pitching plus numbers so far, but the results have not followed. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to just looking at pitching plus, uh, that's where we did a lot of the validation. Um, you know, pitching plus beats uh, ERA after like 50 pitches. So ERA is not very good. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> uh, it beats uh, DRA um, shortly after that. FIP at about uh, 200 pitches. So already there, you know, you're looking at FIP. Some people will look at FIP and say, oh, here's a, you know, 5A, FIP or whatever. You already want to rather look at pitching plus over FIP at 200 pitches. So that's like, you know, three early starts this year or, you know, two starts for guys who who had more bulk. Um, you know, so I've got the, it's actually sorted for pitches right now, I believe. Hey. Um so, you know, Corbin Burns, uh, 382 pitches uh, with an excellent 108 uh, pitching plus. Bing, bang, boom. Chris Bassett, you could you could focus too much on his 95 stuff plus, but you'd be missing a 102 pitching plus and a great home park. So, you know, I think that should help you understand. Like Chris Paddock at this point, uh, you know, if you if you if you if you're too like zoomed in on the stuff plus, uh, which is a 93. It's been 94 for the, the, the last two starts. Um, then you'll miss the fact that he has a 108 location plus, uh, 109 location plus, 108 pitching plus. So I think one of the things that the twins did were just like, well, let's put you throwing these pitches in better locations. You know, I think that's been the big difference because it's a little bit harder to like affect pitch movement change in two weeks with a new pitcher you just got right mm-hmm. so it's a little bit easier to just be like hey we want you aiming your fastball a little bit higher or this or that right um and so i think that's been the big thing for him and he's at 231 pitches so i would look at his pitching plus uh, over his fip right now um so you know that that helps answer your question i do uh hew closer to stuff plus early in the season um, I think it becomes meaningful a little bit quicker and it's a little bit more stable over the course of the season. Uh, but for basically the top 10 pitchers and pitches thrown, they're already at the point where their pitching plus is amazing. Uh, I guess that would make it a little bit worrisome for Logan Gilbert, uh, who's got a 98 pitching plus uh, with a 100%, 100, 100 uh, stuff plus. He's a little bit over his head. As much as it pains me to say that because I predicted him uh, to be the best pitcher on the Mariners, I do think he's a decent sell high. I mean, right now you could probably get a lot for Logan Gilbert, and you might even be able to get a struggling pitcher with good pitching plus back. You know what I mean? So you might be able to uh, trade Logan Gilbert uh, for, or even for a hot start, like a Mackenzie Gore plus a bat you really need. Mm. You know, uh, that might, might that might actually make sense. Um, or for... I'm looking for a struggler up here. Um, you know, Kyle Wright. Like, if you got Kyle Wright, I mean, I guess you probably wouldn't. That he's too hot right now. Uh, what's what are Tarek Skubal's overall numbers look like? Hmm. He's got a 102 pitching plus. Skubal's overall numbers, I don't think are 
bad because I know he had one, at least one start that maybe fixed that some things. Really good. He is sitting at a yeah, 230 ERA 109 whip right now. So you're not getting a, a deal with Scooble. Well, all the guys right now with a uh, good high pitching plus. I uh, you'd have to the, you have to call. I'll I'll do the uh, I'll throw the update on the Google Doc. The Google Doc right now is the link. The way to find the link is to look at my last piece about stuff and look in the comments. I know that's super inelegant, but I can tell you behind the scenes we are actually moving towards something better than a stupid Google Doc link. Do you have a Bitly link at least? We could do that. Could put that in the show notes. <laughs> I I'm keeping it for subscribers only right now. Okay, all right, fair enough. But but I I you know the smaller the sample, the more I look at stuff plus to answer that. Um, and then once you know you get past uh, 300 and 400 pitches, pitching plus is uh, the most is the powerful tool because and the way this works is on a game on a given single pitch. This is the weirdest thing. On a given single pitch, location matters more than stuff. Like on, on just one pitch. The whole problem is the implication of that. You could say, oh, then command matters more. The problem is it's harder to replicate a given location than it is to replicate a given shape. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's harder to like put the ball on a tee than it is to just have 10 inches of drop on your curveball every time. Well, it's Yeah, it, it's hit, like hitting the driver really far and... Doing that consistently, that part's easier, but getting the ball to go Placing exactly it. where you want it to go, that, that is harder. But the but the drives where you do get it exactly where you want it to go, those are the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but which but which aspect are you gonna chase? You know, which one is easier to chase? So that that's a little bit of what's going on in baseball writ large. And that actually is part of my hit by piss, hit by pitch piece today with Britt uh, Giroli is that uh, there, you can blame the ball if you want for the the offense being down. I think that's a big part of it. But when it comes to hit by pitches, there are lots of long term stuff going on in baseball that have to do with hit by pitches that have nothing to do with the ball. And this is this conversation we just had is a little bit little bit part of it. Um, but uh, yeah, so. For guys that have, uh, you know, fewer pitches, maybe, uh, you know, uh, who's, a, who's a guy with fewer pitches that has stand like, you know, a Spencer Strider or whatever. Uh, there, I'm really excited. Mitch Keller is a really interesting one because he's got 300 pitches thrown. He's got a 109 stuff plus, a 102 location plus, and a 102 pitching plus. Yeah. I know he's been struggling, and I know he's not a perfect pitcher, but if... You know, I think this week was a good time to pick him up for the double tap at home, right? Wasn't it? Milwaukee. Yeah, it was a two-start week. And the I was watching the start against the Brewers, and I, I'm still frustrated watching him, even though the underlying numbers are good and, and pointing in the right direction. And there's no... It's not good command. It's okay locations, but it's not good command. There's no reason... For the Pirates to give up on him now. He's showing enough improvement where they are fully justified to just keep throwing him out there every fifth day and seeing what happens. Why? Why do you think he insists or they insist on having him throw his fastball as much as he does? It's so much fastball. Well, right now he loves it because it's 98, 99. I know. I know that, they, but with the added velo, I know it's, it's better than it was. He also just does, he doesn't have great natural command. So I don't think he has a great command of his secondaries, you know? Ah, I guess, I mean, I guess that's it, but it just makes him too predictable. You just sit fastball. Yeah, I still think Tony Gonsolin is just a fascinating case. I don't, I don't, 
I'm not that in on him. He's got a 91 stuff plus, 97 uh, pitching plus. His last start was the first one over 100 pitching plus. He's like Drew Rasmussen in that he throws like 70 to 80 pitches a start, so he's going to be tough on quality start and wins leagues. But he's unlike Drew Rasmussen in that Drew Rasmussen's pitching plus line, even with his diminished stuff this year, is better across the board. And we just had his best uh, pitching plus stuff numbers uh, for the season. I do have numbers by appearance here. Gonsolin, uh, in his best uh, appearance, his last one, had a 94 stuff plus. His first time with an above 100 location plus, one or two pitching plus. That was, But every time before that, he was well below average in all those. Uh, Rasmussen has been developing a two-breaking ball approach. And in his last start, uh, he was able to differentiate them uh, well. Uh, but, uh, you know, pitching plus still doesn't like the shape of his fastball, uh, his four-seam fastball. Uh, but if you were comparing the two, I would rather have Rasmussen than Gonsolin. Um, and part of that is the pitching plus model. Does that, did, did I answer the questions? I mean, I think you did. And the, then the, some... the, the big numbers are 250, uh, when it beats FIP and then, uh, 300 to 400 is when it beats preseason projections. Is Charlie Morton a buy low for you? Ooh, yes. That's a good note. That's what, that was actually the name I was going to come up with. Like Gilbert for Morton plus. Right. Doable now wasn't doable a month ago. Yeah. 106 stuff plus says the stuff is not it's below where it used to be but it's not terrible 98 location is not great 99 pitching plus is not great but i still look at that 106 stuff plus and say man this is a guy who still has above average stuff and he's made it work and what's missing right now is are his locations and it's not like he has a reputation for being a wild child with terrible command so uh, i i think charlie morton is a buy low figured i figured he would be but wanted to throw it out there because I think he's one of those guys because he's a little older, especially. I think you have people more willing to move on and, and meet, deal him a little bit low. I think that's a, at least an attainable sort of buy low target. A lot of times the buy lows that you, you want to go get, the person that has that player is not necessarily interested. I think that could be a little bit different, mostly because of Morton's age. And, and, and injury, but I mean, he pitched on that injury. I'm still in. I, I mean, I think he'll drop in my rankings, uh, but I think I don't think I'll push Gilbert as much as people expect I'd, me to because I had him in the top forty, right? So I think that Morton will drop to, you know, the the thirty somewhere, and maybe Gilbert will jump to the thirty somewhere. But then they'll be like surprisingly uh, equivalent, and so you could pull that move where you're like, I'm not really dropping that much in pitching, and I might get this extra bat or something I need, you know. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Thanks a lot for that question, by the way, Jack. Let's get to another question. This one came in from Robert. Robert was curious if there's any correlation between teams that foul off more pitches and thus see more pitches and having higher OBP or OPS. Is following off pitches a skill that could lead to better results for a player or a team, or is it more of a byproduct than a true skill? So I started to look at the uh, Sabre site, digging in to see if anyone had researched this before. Because this, yeah, because I, I saw big. it at a Sabre seminar, yeah. Right. I found a study. Maybe this is the one that you had either saw a presentation on or read before. This one was from Dr. Jeffrey Howard. He was looking at foul ball accumulation relative to hit probability. So his particular study, yeah, that sounds right. it split everything out like this. It was There was inside the count 
situations, which were the first two strikes accumulated were foul balls, and that would be like a, a poor pitching situation. The hitter was almost on it, but not quite on it. And then there was outside the count. The first two strikes were a combination of called or swinging strikes. Good pitching, right? And you get some foul balls in there. Hybrids that were anything where foul balls so were in the middle were in thrown out. In the good out. pitching scenario, the foul balls are maybe an indication of a two-strike approach. Yes, where the batter is like sort of, you know, not taking his a swing and just trying to trying to get make contact. Right, and then in this study, the hybrid stuff was thrown out, right? Because not every sequence is going to be completely inside or outside the count with the foul balls. You could have one foul mm-hmm. ball among the first two strikes. Those were were just discarded to try That's and hone interesting. in. So he's kind of looking only at the extremes a little bit, right? Just to figure out you know, what what happens here. So, oh, Andrew McCutcheon has his first home run. Ding 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 ding. ding. I'm gonna. Play. I was going to make a DFS lineup, and I got busy getting ready for the show, and he was going to be in it because it was a righty-lefty matchup, and he was leading off. He was cheap. That's right. oh, I'm sure he, he was popular. He did lead off the game. He got a homer off of Quintana. That's money you could have had. The DFS lineups I didn't play, uh, a paper that no one <laughs> wants to read. So, All right, so what happened with the inside? Out, inside, inside was, uh, what was inside again real quick? Inside the count with the first two strikes accumulated were foul balls. Outside the count okay. with the first two strikes were a combination of called or swinging strikes. Okay, so okay. hybrids thrown out. And the key findings, which also included a link back to some previous work, I guess there was a study from William Giuliano that showed that hitting a foul ball for the first strike did not provide conclusive data when it comes to predicting hitting success via batting average. So mm-hmm. the paper that that came from Dr. Howard, put forth the argument that the foul ball is a ubiquitous data event that should garner more serious consideration in the pitching change process. Foul balls are far more than simply a drag upon game flow. They are data-rich events that, when assessed cumulatively and in tandem with knowledge of the historical data on hit probabilities, can provide valuable insight into pitcher fatigue and batter hit success. So... The, there was a big difference in outcomes, whether it was the inside the count accumulation or outside the count. If it was inside the count, batting averages, hit probabilities ended up being much higher than if it was outside the count. So the, it, it really, the answer to the original question that was so sent to us. So a pitcher gives up a lot of foul balls and a hitter is hit, and hitting foul balls that's likely to hit, end up in a hit. Yeah, if you're fouling off pitches early in the count, that led to more hits at the end. But the two-strike approach, yeah, that two-striker person is battling, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that's not as good a situation. Yeah. So it does make it difficult to just look at a batter and say, oh, this batter fouls off a lot of you know balls. I want him. Like I, I remember when I looked at it, the types of batters that fouled off a lot of bat, uh, balls were Pablo Sandoval types. And you don't necessarily, you may want one or two. It's like, I think of like Eddie Rosario, Pablo Sandoval types, right? They have, they don't have a great sense of the zone. They have good bat to ball and they swing a lot. And so that lends, it lends itself to foul balls, but it's not something you necessarily want to, you know, you know, depend on long-term. Because as you start to age, you can't make as much contact and this turn into strikeouts pretty quickly. You know, just missing. Like you're just missing the ball. Do you really want to bet on someone who's just missing the ball? generally no that turns to over time to more missing the ball to completely missing the ball <laughs> so I, I came away from this particular study thinking it was more about pitching perform performance than than hitting performance just mm. the way it was it was studied here i still think i would i would consider someone following pitches off early in the count 
I would consider that to be better than taking called strikes or swinging and missing, right? So there's, there is some value in fouling pitches off relative to the other outcomes for a hitter. I think it's really difficult to nail down what exactly they are and how we should value it, at least at this time it is. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when we when we last looked at foul ball rates, didn't we look at uh, didn't we look at sort of cumulative foul like just how many pitchers gave up foul balls? Like we looked at number, not rate, right? right? Yeah. And it's so, a work thing. How many extra pitches do you have to throw because of foul balls? But also like the, we had a list of pitchers that like seemed like pretty good pitchers. But if you're going to do anything by by bulk rather than rate, then pretty good pitchers are going to get to the top because they're the ones that are allowed to pitch more and they get more bulk. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, so I, I've got it right now by percentage. I need to maybe change the minimum number of results uh, to see if I can get a better. Re- All right. So here are the leaders among pitchers in foul ball. Uh, percentage rather than rate rather than bulk phoenix sanders do you know that you just make that player up no (laughs) ethan roberts continue uh yeah taylor clark i think i've heard of taylor clark okay we're off to a we're diamondbacks okay oh yeah that's right yeah tanner banks what is this list is this a joke? Are you just making a, are you just making up players? Are these MLB the show players that I've never like, what These are the guys who are giving up 30% of their pitches or foul balls. Hmm. Okay. The there is a there is a good name on here, Justin Verlander. However, one thing that's interesting about Justin Verlander is that he has lost ride on his four-seam fastball. And so this may be a little bit of an interaction between where he's aiming the ball and what kind of ride he's getting compared in the past. Uh, the next name, Robert Suarez, it has good stuff, but really, really bad command. And uh, AJ Minter uh, is also next on that list. I think he's in that sort of bucket. Pretty bad command, good stuff. Jonathan Lewisaga is eighth. He, uh, he's his stuff has diminished this year. He's struggling early. He's not quite where he used to be. Uh, the inter- most interesting young name on here is Mackenzie Gore at tenth. Uh, when I look at his per pitch uh, stuff numbers, I, 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 I find it really important, really interesting. And because Mackenzie Gore is a name that people are kind of wondering right now if they've gotten, if they've got a, a star on their hands, you know, um, or, you know, what's going on with him. I do want to kind of run through his per pitch numbers because I find them really interesting. Mackenzie Gore's slider has a 131 stuff plus. Um, so that is a legit pitch. Mackenzie Gore's forcing fastball has a 104 stuff plus, which is pretty good. So that's a pretty good two pitch combo. Uh, but his changeup is 90 and his curveball is 75 and he still throws them a fair amount. So, uh, it's a really interesting, isn't that interesting for a young pitcher to have like this kind of elite two pitch, uh, situation or not elite, but like above average, good two pitch situation, but be constantly throwing these subpar pitches still. Overall, you'd say it's an okay sign, though, right? Because it's like, well, at least he has these four pitches, right? He's got four, and you want him to throw two a lot more than the others. And he throws the fastball quite a bit. I think he was over 60% yeah. fastball usage when I looked at it last. And it's and it's good to have a good fastball. I mean, that's that's where Gilbert started, right? Gilbert's, Gilbert has a good fastball, and the other pitches are not as good. And I 
wondered if the if the arc for Gilbert is one that we have to be mindful of with Gore, where we're going to have a, a run where he looks really good and the league's going to start to figure out the two-pitch mix a little bit. And if the other stuff doesn't come around, maybe as teams get second and third looks at him, especially in division, they're going to start to hit yeah. him a little bit more than they're hitting him right now. But if you said, hey, you, you found a top 40, top 50 starting pitcher on the waiver wire after the first week of the season... That's still good, even if he's not an immediate star. And there's still a possibility think... that it does click, but it he's probably more of a a matchup, a good matchup pitcher right now than a set it and forget it pitcher right now. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of risk with what happens when everyone's healthy, right? I mean, he has options. They do have five good, you know, I, I mean, Nick Martinez probably doesn't have options. And so even if Nick Martinez is not pitching amazingly, it, I think it would take a fair amount to like push him out of the rotation and gore in. No? Yeah, Nick Martinez does not have options left. I was just going to make sure we didn't have a... Grizzly Adams did have a beard moment. <laughs> no, I don't think Nick... I mean, he, he, he exhausts his options and went to Japan and came back, so... I'm not saying this at all be rude or anything. I think it's a generally safe assumption that if a player goes... If a, if a player in North America ends up playing overseas, it's probably it's because out he's of out of minor options. league options and there's just a better deal in a different league. Like that's, I think, a generally fair assumption to make. A, 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 to compare like to like, Nick Martinez's uh, curveball is a 130 stuff plus. His sinker is an 89, four seam 87. Uh, and that changeup, which looks really beautiful, is an 80. But uh, he locates it well and is an overall pitch, an above average overall pitch by pitching plus. But so Nick Martinez is a much less exciting pitcher by pitching plus. Um, and you could see them making the change. But the risk that they don't is uh, probably going to keep him out of the top 50 for me. You could pretty easily justify Nick Martinez as your long reliever, too. If Mackenzie Gore has two good pitches Martinez really only has one if Martinez is still struggling with walks you could do that it's not gonna it's not gonna ruin it's a, more of a starter's repertoire though where it's like four meh pitches <laughs> and an out pitch um but uh no I I, uh, I I was really I was really impressed with Nick Martinez because he took a pitch design course at uh driveline and uh taught himself so uh, I do. I am really impressed with him as a person. Um, I I don't know exactly what will happen going forward with him and Gore, but that's a. Uh, uh, I hope to get you guys access to per pitch stuff. Uh, we're talking on the level. I don't want to like make hard level promises, but we're talking like two or three weeks. I know it's way into the season and it's it's upsetting, but um, you know what can you do? Things move slowly sometimes. I promise very little most of the time because uh, yeah. <laughs> people can be pleasantly surprised instead of consistently disappointed. I find that's a, a safer place to live. So uh, consider that as a possibility. Uh, if you've got a question for us for a future episode, rates and barrels at theathletic.com is a great way to reach us. You can also drop a question underneath this video in the comment section on YouTube. Be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. Get a subscription to The Athletic for $1 a month at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. Find me 
at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.